0: Welcome to the Most Notorious Podcast. I'm Eric Rivenis. So yes, I pride myself on this podcast, and I hope you enjoy it for this reason too, because I find authors who are experts on their subjects. My desire is that in doing so, I'm able to present this history as accurately as possible. Ghosts and the paranormal don't fit into the realm of fact for most of us, so this episode, admittedly, is a turn from the usual fare. But everything goes out the window for Halloween, and we're all about the fun today. I'm very pleased to have as my guest, Diane Student, producer and co-host of the History Goes Bump podcast, a wonderful podcast featuring haunted history. Thanks, Diane, for popping over to our neck of the woods.
1: Well, thanks so much, Eric, for having me on. I am so honored. I've been listening to your podcast pretty much from the moment you started it, and I just absolutely love it. It is very unique when it comes to the true crime genre, because a lot of the true crime out there is like the last 10, 20, 30 years, but you go way back, and I love that stuff.
0: And I enjoy your podcast as well. Whenever I need to get my ghost fix, I listen to History Ghost Bump.
1: Well, what's great and with the show that we're going to do here is that true crime and ghost stories go really well together because they both entail death.
0: (laughs) (laughs) Absolutely. So we're going to be doing a top 10 list today, aren't we? What do you have in store for us?
1: Well, you had asked if I wanted to come on and do some historical ghost tales, and I was kind of thinking, I wonder what we should go with, and I couldn't really think of a theme But I thought, well, your show is most notorious and there's a lot of crimes and hauntings out there that go hand in hand with some of the most notorious characters in history and also some of the more notorious crimes in history. And so this isn't a for sure set in stone. This is a top 10. This is just 10 that I pulled out and then I've ranked them according to how I would see them from. 10 being the lesser, to number one being the most notorious. And so uh, I'm very excited to share a lot of these with everybody. And just to give your listeners a feel for where I'm coming from, although my specialty is haunted history. I consider myself an open-minded skeptic, so just because I talk about ghosts doesn't mean that I believe for sure that there is a haunting going on in a particular location. One thing I usually leave people with is that's for you to decide.
0: Duly noted, and I enjoy ghost stories just for the sake of the thrills and the chills. So...
1: (laughs) What I did is I went back over your archive of shows that you've done and a lot of the most notorious characters that you've talked about are going to be on this list. The first one is not somebody that you've talked about, but this is a crime that happened in a location called Myrtle's Plantation. A lot of people who are into history have probably heard of this. It's in St. Francisville, Louisiana, And it's often referred to as Paranormal Investigators Disneyland because there's so much activity going on here that paranormal investigators love to go there because they just know they're going to get something. And the main reason why we have a haunting going on here goes back to the time when there were slaves and servants that were on the plantation, and one of those slaves was named Chloe. And she was one of the slaves that got to stay in the house. So they were a little bit higher crust than the other slaves that had to stay out in the fields. And you wanted to hold on to that position if you were in the house. Chloe also was a little bit more involved because rumor has it that she was having an affair with the man of the house. And the man who owned the house was Judge Woodruff. And so they were having this illicit affair And she started to get a little too comfortable in the house. And she would do a lot of eavesdropping, and she was caught eavesdropping. So the judge's retaliation to her was to cut her ear off. And so for the rest of her life, she would wear a turban around her head to cover up the fact that she was missing that ear. He also was going to put her out of the house. And she was really worried about losing that position, but she thought, I could get back in good graces here if, say, the family was to get sick, and I cared for them and brought them back to health. Well, in order to have sick people, you have to help them get sick. And the easiest way to do that, especially back then, was poison. That seemed to be the favorite way for everybody to either kill people or make them sick. And so that's what she decided to do, and she was going to cook this meal, and put the poison in these cakes. And where she got the poison was from oleander leaves. So it wasn't like she just went down to the drugstore and got some arsenic. She, this is something that she could have gotten out in the garden and included in the cakes. And she only wanted to make them ill. She didn't really want to kill them. But unfortunately, when you're dealing with poison and you don't really know what you're doing, what she ended up doing was killing two of the three children and Judge Woodruff's wife. And so the other slaves heard about this and they were not happy. And what they ended up doing was dragging her out of the house and they hung her on a tree and then they threw her body into the river. The Myrtle's plantation is now a bed and breakfast and it's apparently very haunted and it's haunted not only by supposedly Chloe, but also by the members of the Woodruff family that she killed. And, In 1992, the owner of the bed and breakfast was walking around the outside of the property taking pictures for insurance purposes. It's just one of those things that you like to do so that you know what you have on the property. And in one of those pictures, she caught a ghostly image that is so convincing that even National Geographic published it because it was just that convincing. Usually when you see some photos, they're kind of blurry or nowadays people can fake things with photoshop and this was back before you had photoshop and everything and they've even had it analyzed by uh different people who are experts when it comes to photography there was a man named norman Benoit. he was a patent researchist and he investigated the photo and he could look at it measure it according to length of arm you know where the hair the head was proportioned and he said This looked like it was legit. He didn't see any way that it could have been faked. And so there's a lot of people who believe that she's haunting the property because it looks like her. It looks like a woman wearing a turban on her head, walking between a couple of the buildings that are on the property. And so it's not really scary to people to see that. But the thing that really scares people is inside of the bed and breakfast is a haunted mirror. And for people who don't know some of the lore that goes with mirrors, in the South, particularly, they would cover over mirrors with a black cloth. And the reason why they would do that is because they feared that a soul could get trapped in a mirror. So if somebody passed away, you would want to cover the mirror so that their soul wouldn't get trapped forever in there. And it's believed that the Woodruff family somehow got trapped in this mirror and it could just be the way it's aged. We all know the silver and mirrors, especially old ones, can get kind of weird looking. But when you look at the mirror, if people were to Google a picture mirror from the Myrtles Plantation, when you look up in the upper right corner, it almost looks like you're seeing a face looking out at you. So people believe that there's handprints that are in that mirror, that there's face in the mirror. And so a lot of people will take pictures of that. They've also seen apparitions around the plantation, walking. So it's one of those places that when people stay there at night, things tend to go bump in the night. It's just a gorgeous, gorgeous location. So that was our number 10. Number nine is something that'll be familiar to you, and that is the Black Dahlia.
0: Sure, sure. So the Black Dahlia. Yes, I did an episode on the Black Dahlia, aka Elizabeth Short. Uh, Steve Hodell made a... Controversial appearance on this podcast earlier this year with claims that the killer was his father, George Hodel. Elizabeth Short's body was discovered on the west side of Norton Avenue in Los Angeles, California, mutilated, completely cut in two on January 15th, 1947. She's become an almost iconic figure in death in dozens of books and movies. And the LAPD at this point still considers the case unsolved. But you're saying that her ghost is still haunting Los Angeles.
1: Yeah, it's so interesting. The way you were putting it there is this is a woman who wanted to be famous. She wanted to be an actress, and that's why she was there in L.A. And to think that this is where she's gotten famous from. And the Black Dahlia, it's not like that was her nickname, That was a name that the press basically gave her because this movie, The Blue Dahlia, was out. So they just kind of linked her in there. She had black hair. She was beautiful. And she liked to frequent a lot of the hotels down there. She would kind of bebop between them. And one of the places that she really liked to stay was the Biltmore Hotel. And this is where they believe that she still hangs out in the afterlife she uh, has had her full bodied apparition when i say that that's somebody who people are seeing her as if she was really there it's not a see-through image this is somebody that looks like a physical person but you're seeing and recognizing her as who she had been so she's seen pacing in an area where there is a bank of phones. And, of course, those bank of phones are not there anymore because, you know, if you could find a payphone somewhere, that's pretty impressive nowadays. But what would happen is she would do a lot of phone calls on these phones because she was looking for money or she had a lot of boyfriends. And I think that's why they have a hard time trying to figure out who killed her because she was kind of secretive about her life And she dated a lot of different people. And so it was just kind of hard to figure out who she was with. So she's always wearing a black dress when they see her. This is one of the favorite things that she liked to be in. And occasionally she'll take a ride on the elevator with people. One guy said that he had gotten into the elevator with her. And he didn't realize at first that she was the Black Dahlia. He had his head down and he just hit the number eight button. And then he noticed that the number six button was lit. So that's when he figures out, well, somebody else must be in the elevator car with me, and I just didn't see her. So he glances behind him, and he sees this young woman in the corner of the elevator. She's got black hair, beautiful eyes, but she seemed really sad. And she kind of gave him a little bit of a smile. So she's interacting with him, and he turns his head to look forward again, and he's not really thinking too much of it. And he can see her reflection in the elevator doors because they kind of have a mirrored surface to them. And then he noticed that she was wearing clothes that, well, that black dress that she's in isn't really a black dress that a woman would be wearing nowadays. It looked like it'd be more appropriate for the 1940s. They get to the sixth floor. The door's open. So he's assuming she's going to step past him because this is her floor and Nobody's getting off, so he kind of clears his throat and says, "Uh, this is the sixth floor, don't you want to get off? And she seemed a little bit startled, and then she goes right on past him, just like she didn't realize what she was supposed to be doing. And as she's going past him, he just feels this icy, cold chill, like a chill he had never felt before. And that's not normal when you have a human being brush past you We're warm-blooded creatures, so you shouldn't be feeling icy cold unless she's you know got ice on her or something for some reason then she turns to him before the doors close and she has this look of urgency in her eyes almost like she's asking him for help in some way and then as the doors close he presses it open again because he's like well maybe she's in some kind of trouble you know she's already acting kind of strangely and as the doors slide back open she's gone he sticks his head out he looks both ways She's nowhere. And there's no way that she could have just walked away that quickly, especially because she was trying to have some kind of interaction with him. So it's not like she's just going to run away quickly.
0: I'm assuming it's a full-bodied apparition that she appears the way she did before she was murdered, right?
1: Yes. it's, and, and she looks so much like she did when she was alive that he goes to a bookstore and he just happens to pick up this book that's about some true crime or something and he opens it up and there he sees her picture and he's like, that's the woman that was in the elevator with me. So that's how much she looked real. She looked physical. He could have touched her if he wanted to. So yeah, that's a full bodied And another difference to explain to people is when I said that they were having an interaction with each other, they usually rank hauntings in two different ways. Either you have an intelligent haunting or you have a residual haunting. A residual haunting is you probably have heard people tell you stories that they'll go to a cemetery and they'll see a woman in white or a woman in black. And she always walks into the cemetery at midnight, you know, kneels down at a grave and then she disappears. And she does this like every night at the same time. That's what a residual haunting would be.
0: Like Resurrection Mary in Chicago.
1: Yes, she is a residual haunting. To the point of if she gets in the car with you and she's talking to you, that's an intelligent haunting. So if they're interacting in some way or they seem aware of you, that makes it intelligent. But if they're just standing by the side of the road waving and then all of a sudden they disappear, probably residual.
0: Interesting. So let's continue. Who's next on the list?
1: All right. Our number eight, I believe, is somebody that you're familiar with. William H. Bonney, or as most of us
0: know him, Billy the Kid. Sure, sure. We did an episode with one of my favorite authors, Mark Lee Gardner, on Billy the Kid, one of the most famous American outlaws in the history of the Old West. He was born, as you mentioned, William H. Bonney. He was well known for his participation in the ill-fated Lincoln County War back in 1878. He, along with his compadres, murdered a sheriff in revenge for the slaying of his mentor, John Tunstall. And he was known throughout the the Southwest for his legendary abilities with a pistol, charisma with the ladies, and his ability to escape while being cornered or even in jail. He was hunted, of course, by Sheriff Pat Garrett and finally killed by Garrett in a darkened room in Fort Sumter, New Mexico at the ripe old age of 20.
1: (laughs) You know, he has such a great legend about him because I've heard both things. I've heard that he's everything that the legend says he is. And then I've also heard that, well, maybe they put the numbers a little bit higher than they really were, that he really didn't kill that many people. Or a lot of the time, the people that he killed wasn't necessarily I wouldn't say murdered people, but he was defending himself. So maybe he wasn't such a bad guy after all.
0: That's the view that Mark Lee Gardner takes, actually, that that Billy the Kid has has just gotten a bad rap. And he was a young man who was dealt with some tough stuff, spent much of his life just reacting to injustices against him.
1: Well, and the other interesting thing about Billy the Kid and what makes it hard when you're looking at hauntings in regards to him is are we sure that Pat Garrett actually got Billy the kid that night? There's some questions about whether the right man was shot because I've heard that the body, when they took it out, it was a person who had much darker skin than Billy the kid. So they were thinking that maybe it was a Mexican. And so we don't know for sure that he actually died because back then you don't have definitive, they, they didn't have the kind of crime stuff that they do now. There's no CSI back then. And, I think they just wanted to make quick work of it. So don't know for sure that that is when he died or not. But he does haunt some locations that he had spent a little bit of time at. And like you said, I kind of feel sorry for him because he did have a rough life. And this John Tunstall was really a father figure for him. And you can't blame a guy for wanting to get some revenge after the person that you see as basically your father has been murdered for some of his business practices because other men didn't like that he was undercutting them. So you can kind of see why he wanted to get involved in this. One of the places that Billy was arrested and taken to was the Lincoln County Courthouse and jail. This is a really creepy looking place. It still stands to this day. And even though it was a place that he probably did not enjoy being, they think that he still haunts this location. There's these things called EVPs that paranormal investigators will try to capture on recorders. A lot of the same stuff that we use to record interviews for podcasting and such, they use that to basically try to pick up some kind of a ghostly voice. There's something about the metal and the digital that sometimes ghosts can't be heard audibly, but they can be caught on a tape, and these are what EVPs basically are. And it's a a voice phenomenon type of thing. And they've picked up ghostly gunfire in the courthouse because there was a jailbreak there and there was shooting that went on. And it's believed that one of the guys who was doing the guarding there that was killed, he didn't die right away. And there's a voice that's been caught saying, help me. So you hear these gunshots that are kind of ghostly sounding and distant. And then you hear someone saying, help me. They think that that might be one of the guards that had been shot while Billy was breaking out of there. He also loved to go to this place called the Ellis Store, and now it's called the Ellis Store Country Inn, and it's a bed and breakfast that's down there in New Mexico. He loved to go there to drink, to dance, just had a really good time. And guests claim that they've had things that are thrown around in their rooms, and One of them even said that they were pushed out of the bed, so I don't know if Billy didn't like them being in the room and thought, hey, what are you doing in here? This is mine. Uh, One guest is certain that the spirit that haunted him was Billy the Kid because you don't necessarily know for sure, especially if they don't show themselves, So, but he was positive that it was Billy the Kid. Uh, Lincoln, New Mexico is not a ghost town, but a very famous ghost wanders its streets today. Billy has been spotted at the old jail that's there. He's also been seen in other parts of New Mexico where he lived and worked.
0: Well, let's move on. We can leave the ghost of Billy the Kid alone to, to haunt in peace <laughs> as we move on to number seven. Our number seven is actually two
1: people, Bonnie and Clyde, because you can't really have one without the other. Well, you know what's interesting about these two is that Bonnie was one of these young ladies, very attractive, and she wanted to get into acting. And not a lot of people know, but Clyde was a musician, and he knew how to play a guitar, and he could sing. If these two would have met each other, let's say in the theater, how much different would it have been if they were famous rather than infamous? But they did meet each other in 1930, and they were immediately smitten with each other. The problem is, Bonnie wasn't available. She was married. She'd gotten married when she was 16 to another bad boy who was in jail, and he used to beat her up. So, the most recent time that he got thrown in jail, she said, You know what? Now's my chance to get out of here. I'm leaving. And she was still married to him. She never got divorced. And at the time of her death, she still had her wedding ring on. I don't know how Clyde felt about that, but they were both from poor families. So they really just didn't have a lot of options out there. Clyde started stealing when he was a young kid. And he just kind of moved up into stealing cars. And then we moved into murder. And he had gotten himself thrown into jail right when he and Bonnie had met each other. And I guess she decided that she wanted to start down this road with him. So she smuggled him a gun so that he could get out of jail. And one thing that people don't know about them is when you hear Bonnie and Clyde, you're thinking, oh, these are big time bank robbers and they would make these big hits. That's actually not what they were about. They were more about hitting the mom and pop stores, gas stations, and usually they'd only get away with 5 or $10. Now, later on in life, their gang, they would have some people that would join them for a while, and then they would leave the gang, or people would get killed along the path. And finally they ended up where they were going to break this guy out of jail, and they, his name was Methven. And after they, during this jailbreak, they had killed a couple of the guards that were there. So they were really wanted after this. And the heat was really on. And Methvin said, you know what? Why don't we go down to my father's farm? We can hide out there. We'll be safe. And we can just let the heat get off us for a little bit. So they said, okay, that sounds like a great idea. We'll go ahead and do that. Before this time, we've had both... um, Bonnie has been really injured. They get into this car accident where the car battery explodes and she gets acid on her leg. So she's horribly burned all the way down to the bone. And she has a really hard time walking. She's limping. She has to be carried sometimes. They just, they're not doing really good. And he, when he had been in jail, he'd wanted to get out so bad because it was so horrible. The conditions there, um, there are tales or rumors that he was being sexually assaulted while he was in jail. He thought, well, the best way to get out of here is if I'm crippled. So he cuts two of his toes off with an axe. So he is handicapped for the rest of his life. He can't even drive a car with shoes on. He has to wear socks to do that. So they're staying down at this farm where Methvin's father is. Well, Methvin's father knows that his son, if they get caught, he is probably going to be killed and executed. And so he wants to get a deal for his son. So he goes to the cops and he says, you know what? You guys are looking for that Bonnie and Clyde. Well, they're staying at my place and I'll help you get them as long as you give my son amnesty. And the cops wanted Bonnie and Clyde so bad that they said, OK, we'll go ahead and do that. And so the way they ended up getting caught is Methvin had pulled his car, his, Methvin's father had pulled his car over to the side of the road And he put the hood up like he was having car trouble and Bonnie and Clyde were coming down the road. And they said, hey, that's, you know, our buddy's dad. Let's pull over and see if we can help him out. He looks like he's having some car trouble. And when they pulled over, this is when uh, the police sergeant that had been chasing him down, his name was Hammer. He had four other men with him. And these five men emptied multiple guns into this stolen Ford V8 that they were driving They fired over 130 bullets into this thing. It's a little bit of overkill. And it was multiple guns, too. I mean, it's like they would unload one gun, toss it aside, and pull out another gun. And just kept filling this car up with bullets. So, obviously, both Bonnie and Clyde were killed. Clyde, amazingly, you think there's 103 bullets. Clyde was only hit by 17 bullets, and Bonnie was hit by 26. All of the wounds were fatal shots. They towed the car to town with the couple still in it. And as you've probably found, as you've been talking on your show with different authors about a lot of these different crimes, is nowadays they put up the tape and they say, here's the police crime tape and you can't go past it. But back then, you could just walk right into a crime scene or reach into a car and pull out souvenirs. So maybe you cut somebody's hair off or try to take a little piece of shirt. And they even tried to uh, take Clyde's ear and his trigger finger They were both buried in separate cemeteries, and they'd always wanted to be together. So some people wonder if not only their life of crime, but also the fact that they weren't put in the same place, buried together, has caused them to still be hanging around in the afterlife. So this was not the end of this gangster couple. Uh, There's a marker, and it's hard to find, but it's out where this execution took place. And people like to try to go out there and take pictures of it. Unfortunately, because of whatever activity they have going on there, sometimes it'll make it so that the cameras won't work. So people can't take a picture. Other people will take pictures, but they get these weird anomalies or these ghostly myths. So it's almost like they're hanging out wherever their lives came to an end here. There's also been these EVPs that I talked about that have been captured at this location. They've had both male and female voices And they identify themselves. So you hear this creepy male voice saying, I'm Clyde. You know, when you're in a location and you hear something that's, you know, it could be any name out there. But Clyde in a place where a Clyde died, what are the chances of that happening?
0: Probably not very good.
1: No. And the death car, of course, has gone into onto infamy. They have saved that car. The woman who owned it when it was stolen sold it for $3,000, so she made some pretty good money off that, and it's traded hands over the years. It now is at a casino in Nevada called Whiskey Pete's, and so you can go there. They've got it behind glass now. It used to be that you could stick your fingers in the bullet holes and such, but they believe that this death car is haunted have the same problems when it comes to taking pictures. People get these weird anomalies. They get weird little flashes of light that are in there. People feel uncomfortable when they're looking at the car. They just get this uneasy feeling, almost as if they're being watched and that people don't want them to be near the car. Then there's another location that's in Mineral Wells, Texas, and this is called the Baker Hotel. It still stands today. And they are trying to renovate it. It's a gorgeous property. And it's haunted by lots of different characters. And they think that Bonnie and Clyde are here as well. And they're not sure if it's because there were times that they would stay there or if it's because it's held some of their property. It had, Bonnie wrote poetry. And so she would write these love letters and poetry to Clyde. So it had some of her letters there. Her 38 revolver was kept there. And also there were photographs of the couple there. And so they're wondering if somehow that connected them to the Baker Hotel. Uh, Seems like their spirits prefer two areas there. There's the Brazos room and then there's also the ballroom. So maybe they're dancing with each other in the afterlife. They have seen a ghostly woman that's in a dated dress has been seen walking around in the lobby. And this is another one of those full-bodied apparitions that we were talking about. So apparently they're still hanging out together. So they might not have buried them together, but somehow their spirits seem to have found each other.
0: We will be back after a brief break. And we have returned. Those are stories I had not heard before. I haven't done an episode on Bonnie and Clyde yet because honestly, I don't find them very compelling. Elvin Karpis, the brains behind the Barker Karpis gang, had nothing but disdain for Bonnie and Clyde. He thought they were not very bright, small-time hoods, and drew too much national attention to the Midwest, where guys like Karpis were trying to keep a low profile.
1: Well, yeah, they were very reckless, and they almost... You know, nowadays, we kind of look back on gangsters and that whole era is kind of romanticized nowadays. At the time, it definitely wasn't. And you wouldn't think that those guys would want it to be romanticized because they wanted to be feared. And Bonnie and Clyde were just not like that because... The pictures that they had of them, there's a lot of pictures that I'm sure people have seen. And it was a whole roll of film that they had taken of each other. And they're like posing with guns. And it's, you know, it's not like they're even trying to look like tough guys. They're just fooling around. Really what they were were a couple of kids. And they had guns and were just very reckless. So I could understand his feelings about that. But one of the things, too, is they were romanticized. And I think people forgot they were killing a lot of people. And a lot of them were police officers and such.
0: Yep. I personally don't find anything romantic about the two of them at all. So, all right, let's, let's move on to number six.
1: Well, number six is another individual that you probably know well, and this is Jesse James. And I just love Jesse James. He's one of my favorite notorious people from back in the past. And I think it's because he was a really likable guy too.
0: Mm-hmm, yeah, he, he certainly is an iconic American criminal. And one of the subjects of another great great episode by Mark Lee Gardner about both the James and the Younger Brothers and the Northfield Bank robbery. Uh, fairly recent. I think I did that back in August. And I even gave you a shout out when the subject turned to the ghost of Charlie Pitts.
1: <laughs> I heard it and I appreciated it. Yeah, he wasn't a very tall guy. He wasn't a very big guy. I mean, he was like five foot nine and 135 pounds and... It seemed like he was a real uh, polite guy and, you know, he would read his Bible and he liked to tell jokes. And so he just seemed like he was a really good guy. And you put him with his, his brother and I guess they just kind of get a little bit crazy, those James boys.
0: It's another mixed bag when, when talking about the James brothers. They were obviously criminals, robbers, murderers, participated in terrible atrocities with William Quantrill and deserved punishment for the violence they committed without question. But they were also a product of their times. Their family suffered during the Civil War. Pinkertons terrorized their family in Missouri, killed their little, little brother. I mean, rough stuff. And their motivations for doing what they did, I think, were far more complex than some heartless, soulless serial killer, for instance.
1: That is true. You know, they both had gotten married, and if only they would have just decided to Start a family and <laughs> try to live the straight and narrow life, but that wasn't the way it was gonna go. Frank, he died at the James Farm in nineteen fifteen and um trying to think of where did do you know when James died? Or Jesse. Do you know when Jesse died?
0: Yeah, that would have been eighteen eighty two, I believe, in Saint Joseph, Missouri. The infamous story, of course that Jesse James was straightening a picture on the wall when brothers Robert and Charlie Ford shot him in the back.
1: Yeah, so basically he didn't even really know what what hit him. I think he turned, didn't he turn to face Bob Ford and bam, that was it. And the really sad thing is the first people to reach him were his kids. I just can't imagine that. Well, because of this, the James family farm is reputed to be really haunted and it's always had that kind of reputation. People will see lights that go on and off in the house when there's nobody there. There's also the sound of pounding hooves, almost as if somebody's riding a horse, but you just can't see them. There's also these shots, gunfire that's in the distance. So it's almost like you've got these gun battles going on on the James family farm, but you don't see anything. You can just hear it, which to me is gotta be creepy because if you're hearing gunshots out of nowhere, You know, you're looking around and ducking and going, is is somebody hunting in the woods? And, you know, (laughs) I'm going to get hit with something. There's also cries that seem to come from nowhere. And these are things that people are hearing audibly, which is when you see these full-bodied apparitions or if you hear something audibly, those are really unique and things that don't usually happen. We actually call when somebody sees full-bodied apparitions, that's like the holy grail because it is such a rarity to have that happen. And it takes a lot of, basically what I think spirits are is this energy, and it takes a lot of energy to cause these things to happen, to manifest, to make a noise, especially for something that we can hear on our wave levels rather than a lower wave level. So to be hearing this stuff out there is pretty amazing. Uh, This has got a long and bloody history, dating back all the way to the Civil War. There's been strange disturbances at the family farm lots of unusual stories whenever you've had a lot of war and things that have happened to a location it just seems to feed into that in 1982 the kansas city star newspaper decided to have an overnight vigil in the house to see if they could pick up anything and it was the 100th anniversary of the death of the only person who had died violently in the house and his name was archie samuel And this was three guys, two of them were from Chicago, and a third was a writer from some other newspaper. And they felt some really weird chills in the house, and they just had a weird feeling when they were there. Now, a lot of people said, well, it's a house in January, it's unheated, but there are doors that would open and close on their own. So you can't really explain that. Maybe you could say, well, it's cold in the house because the heat's not on. But how do you get these doors to open and close and these lights going on and off? There's a staff member out there. She admitted that she at one time heard the low voices of men in the woods near the house and there was nobody there. She heard the sound of what she described as restless horses. And again, there were no horses on the property to be making those noises on several occasions she had even gone into the woods later and would check to see in the area where she'd hear these voices and she wouldn't even see any tracks. Now for me, if I hear voices out in the woods, I'm not walking out there <laughs> and there was no horses or anything. So it seems that the James family farm is still being haunted by Jesse and probably Frank as well. And you know, who could blame him? because Jesse for the way that he died, it just, it would kind of make you angry if somebody just Kind of gives you a cheap shot, the way I look at it. Number five is Al Capone. Now, Al Capone is in connection with something that you probably know really well from the Chicago area with the St. Valentine's Day massacre. And one of the hauntings that is is connected to Al Capone has to do with that massacre because although he never really admitted it, I think that he was probably involved in it, that he helped to make that happen. And this was because he and Bugs Moran were in rival gangs, and it all came to a head. You had your Irish thugs that would call themselves the Northside Gang. This was led by a a man who was named Dion O'Bannon, and he was executed. And this did not go over well so capone was born in brooklyn in 1899 his parents had come over from italy so he's italian so you've got your uh side gang which are these irish guys and then you got the italian guys they do not like each other capone belonged to something that was called the chicago outfit so this whole time they're on two different sides of things and it came to a head with this saint valentine's day massacre and what happened is, Bugs Moran was supposed to be there in the morning. They had set him up and told him that they had this whiskey shipment coming in, and it was this really good whiskey. And so he wanted to make sure he was there, but for some reason he overslept. And when he gets there, he notices that there's some cops going into the warehouse where he's running his business out of, and he's, you know, running the booze and that kind of thing. So he decides to turn around and go around the block and wait for the cops to go away because he doesn't want to get busted. Well, what was going on is the men who went in were only dressed as cops. They weren't actually cops. And they went in and massacred the guys who were inside of this warehouse. And to this day, that warehouse, it is no longer there. There's, I believe it's a nursing home that's there now. But there's a little, like, grassy area that the people can sit in. And that is where the actual massacre had taken place. They hear voices out there. People get a very uncomfortable feeling out there. You have this ghostly sounds of gunfire. But because Al Capone was connected to this, he was haunted from that day forward by the ghost of James Clark, who was Bugs Moran's brother-in-law, and he was one of the massacre victims and this was something that was documented by lots of people when Capone was incarcerated at Eastern State Penitentiary fellow inmates would say that they'd hear him in the middle of the night crying and he would scream Jimmy please leave me alone and he would tell people that there's this ghost of Jimmy and he won't leave me alone he keeps haunting me he hits me in my sleep he keeps saying things to me and it really was just driving him crazy Now, he also had a certain venereal disease, which kind of messes with your mind as well. So who knows? Maybe that was causing him to have some kind of hallucination. Maybe he was just feeling guilty about it. But this was something that he carried with him even to another place that he stayed. When he was at the Lexington Hotel, he would tell his bodyguards that he was having these frequent encounters with this Jimmy. They would hear him begging in his room to be left alone. It was just like he was being tormented. Occasionally, they'd bust in thinking that somebody was trying to hurt him because, I mean, why is Al Capone begging for somebody to leave him alone? There's got to be somebody in there messing with him. And he would be in the room all by himself. So they were like, well, who's he talking to? And he would tell them that Jimmy's ghost had just been there. Uh, He also enlisted the help of a psychic named Alice Britt, and said, can you get rid of this guy? Get him to leave me alone. So she would, you know, do some of her whatever. I always call it hooey. And that didn't help. One of Capone's valets once saw the actual ghost of Jimmy in the parlor. And he witnessed it run behind some curtains. So apparently there was something really going on there. He called for some other bodyguards to come help him. When they looked behind the curtains, nobody's there. And then when Capone was in Alcatraz, this is where they think his ghost might actually be haunting. So this is not Jimmy now. We're talking about Al Capone. He liked to play the banjo of all things. And they do occasionally hear the sad banjo plinking going on in the cells occasionally, especially in the area of the prison shower. So that must have been an area where he liked to play. So that's good old Al.
0: So, I did learn from Deirdre Capone in another great episode that there are some people, including her, that question her granduncle's involvement in the St. Valentine's Day massacre. She claims the cops were really cops. And he was actually exonerated in a mock trial recently that was conducted in Chicago by an organization of lawyers. But I've been to the site of the massacre a few times, and there's definitely an eerie, heavy feeling there. And I always brushed it off as as something of my own mental creation, but if any place could be haunted, I'd imagine it would be there. But I've got to ask you something. There seems to be a disproportionate number of well-known hauntings by people with notorious, checkered, infamous pasts. Why do you think there are so many celebrity criminal ghosts?
1: (laughs) You know, that's a really good question. I don't know that I've ever thought about it. If I was just to put out some thoughts on that, I think one is... A lot of these characters are over the top. I mean, if you think of an Al Capone, he lived over the top. So it's almost like they their energy is higher and they just can't go away. You know, part of the problem is we don't know what a quote unquote ghost is. When people ask me, what is a haunting? I couldn't tell you for sure, because I have all different theories about sometimes I wonder if we're not just seeing a little bit of a time uh, weird loop going on so it's not that you're seeing a ghost you're seeing something from the past that happens to be crossing into our time for some reason that it's just some kind of a weird time blip so i don't know about that i don't know if it's because people are more familiar with famous people so when they see them but still even if you just see any ghost it seems like the famous ones are the ones that are talked about the most maybe it's just because people Nowadays, look at how we are with different celebrities and the Kardashians and such. You know, people talk more about it. So they're more out there, even though you're sitting there going, "Well, what have they done? So I'm wondering if that's with famous ghosts. It's just there's more people talking about them. Obviously, on my show, we talk about so many different that I don't see an overwhelming amount of what I would say are famous ghosts. If there's an overwhelming well-known ghost out there, would be this lady in white. It seems like every place has a lady in white haunting it.
0: I don't want to see a real life Kardashian, let alone the ghost of one.
1: (laughs) (laughs) I'm telling you, if I'm haunted by a Kardashian, that is hell. (laughs) 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 Well, you know, when you were talking about with the stories when it comes to these different crimes and What happened or what didn't happen. It's the same thing with urban legends. It's like this story gets out there and then it gets twisted and turned. And like you said, you just, you never know what the truth is. It's a little easier when you're talking to a family member if they actually, and I believe that was a while ago, but it seems like she actually had some interactions with him. Is that right?
0: You mean Deirdre? Yes. Yes. She has some memories of him when she was very little.
1: So, you know, she might have a better accounting of what happened there. And, and if it was really the police going in there, they certainly don't want to tell people. They just went in and gunned down all of these men who may not have even been armed. So it's hard to know. And like I said, you know, with with the syphilis hitting him, he could have been hallucinating any kind of thing. And who knows? Jimmy could have been some figment of his imagination. It could have been something else, somebody else. I mean, there's a lot of people that he ran into and, and got into altercations with. So it could have been anybody really.
0: Very true. So who is next?
1: Number four on the list is Madame LaLaurie. And this is a character that has gotten a lot of fame, especially more recently. American horror story had her on, I believe it was in season three, Don't quote me on that, but I know that she was on one of the more recent seasons. This is a woman who committed a heinous deed. She's from down in Louisiana, and she was Crail. And she she was married to a a man who had a lot of money, but she also had a lot of money herself, which was something that a lot of women back in the 18th and 19th century— didn't have. They just didn't have a lot of money back then. She married her first husband, Don Ramon de Lopez e Angelo. He was a high-ranking Spanish royal officer. She was only 14 at the time. I guess they were a little bit more lenient about that stuff. And Louisiana at the time was just a Spanish colony. So that's why he was there. And because he was one of these royal officers, he was Of the upper crust because they owned the area. What ended up happening is they weren't happy with some of the work he was doing there, so they shipped him back to Spain. Well, Delphine, which is Madame LaLaurie's first name, she decided that she would go ahead and go back to Spain with him. Unfortunately, he died on the trip. She was pregnant at the time. So here she is, her husband is dead, and she's just had this baby. And So then she meets this guy who was a friend of the pirate, Jean Lafitte, and his name was Jean-Paul Blanc, and he would become her second husband. Now, obviously, if you're friends with the pirate, you're probably not a good guy yourself. So he's out doing a lot of stuff, particularly
0: in the slave trade. He was also a merchant. He was a French guy. Jean Lafitte actually assisted General Andrew Jackson in his successful defense against the British in the Battle of New Orleans in 1815. I've been wanting to do an episode about him for a while now.
1: You are right. Very right. Um, They purchased this house that's at 409 Royal Street. It was this two-story brick townhouse. They called it Villa Blanc. So it was after his last name. And that building still exists today. And it's an antique store. And they were really wealthy. They had a plantation that was there. They had four children, and apparently Delphine liked the name Marie quite a bit because all of her children that were female were named Marie. (laughs) So I don't know why, but she just liked that kind of thing. So they've been married for seven years, and Blanc dies in 1815. So now she's had two husbands die on her. So she meets this other guy, and his name is Leonard Louis Nicholas LaLaurie. He's a very young guy. He's 22 years old they get married. He's a doctor and he really likes the city of New Orleans because there's this thing called voodoo going on there and there's drugs that they use with voodoo and he likes to look into how you can use those drugs when it comes to medicine, particularly the kinds of medicines that zombify people. Well, in order to use these medicines and figure out how they work, You have to do experiments, and the best way to do experiments is on human beings. Well, Madame LaLaurie has slaves on her plantation, and this is where we get into some of these heinous acts because they're going to use these slaves in some of these experiments, and they do some horrible things to them. Now, history, as we were talking, sometimes you don't know exactly what happened, History will say that Madame LaLaurie did this to dozens and dozens of slaves, and they treated them in these horrible ways. But the reality of it was it was probably less than 10 people, but these people were kept in horrid conditions. She had a cook that she would chain to the stove, never let her leave, and not let her eat. So she's cooking food for the family, but she's not allowed to eat any of it. There also was this young slave girl who she would force her to comb out her hair and i think she must have pulled madame LaLaurie's hair or something and she got really mad so she chases the little girl outside the little girl runs up onto the roof and then she ends up running off of it to her death the neighbors see this so they're wondering what's going on over at this house well All of these slaves are being mistreated in such a horrible way. And the cook finally says that she's had enough. And she's right there at the stove, so it's pretty easy to start a fire. And in 1834, this fire breaks out in the kitchen. And more than likely, the cook probably started it. Firefighters rush into the home. They manage to get the flames pushed back. And so they start conducting a search of the house so that they can make sure that they've gotten everyone out of there. And the scene that they find is just horrible because there's this secret door that they're able to find because the wall that was in front of it is burned away. It leads into the attic and inside the attic, you've got slaves that are chained to the walls. They're naked. They have, there's like buckets of body parts have been placed all about the room. There was one of the female slaves had excrement in her mouth I don't know what that experiment was, but then they sewed it shut, sewed her mouth shut. Another female had had her abdomen sliced open and her intestines were wrapped around the outside of her body. I mean, this is what these people were doing to these slaves there. There was a male slave. He had a hole that was bored into his head and a small stick that was placed inside of it so that his brain could be stirred. It was just amazing. Now, you might think, well, this story just sounds so outrageous, it can't be true. But the New Orleans Bee, at that time, posted this story, and they put it out in print. So this is something that had really happened. They said that there were seven slaves that were more or less horribly mutilated. They were suspended by their necks with their limbs apparently stretched and torn from one extremity to the other. Language is powerless and inadequate to give a proper conception of the horror, which a scene like this must have inspired. Well, you can imagine this goes out in the newspaper. And Madame LaLaurie is somebody who would have these grand parties at the plantation. These people are finding out this woman is sick. Well, they decide they're going to take action all on their own. Madame LaLaurie knows they're coming for her. So she takes off. She gets in a coach and she manages to get on a boat and sails off to France. And she dies in Paris. Now, a lot of people died in this home that she had owned and where this went on. And it is apparently one of the more haunted locations here. And as a matter of fact, I don't know how many people know this, but a few years ago, Nicolas Cage, the actor, actually bought the home. And he was able to only spend one night in that house. And it was so bad that he never returned and he got rid of it. Oh, my God. So that kind of tells you something when you have a Hollywood actor that buys this and it's a gorgeous home right down there in the French Quarter and he spends one night in it and is gone. He's done with it. There was somebody who had lost their life in the mansion back in 1892. This is after Madame LaLaurie has gone. The fire has been, the house has been restored after the fire. It was basically a place where transients would stay because nobody was living there. And there was a guy named Jules Vigny. He was a member of a wealthy New Orleans family. But he was a little eccentric, probably uh, might have had some mental issues. And so he was living as a vagrant. He took up residence in the Lori Mansion. And he was found dead on an old ratty cot there. And rumors circulated that there was a lost treasure in the house because he was part of a rich family. So people would try to find the treasure there, but there was no treasure there. But they believe that he still haunts that location. Family pets were killed in the house, and several children claimed that there was this whip-wielding phantom that would chase them in the house of people who would live there later on. Uh, There was a child who told this terrifying tale of being confronted by a naked black man in chains, who tried to attack him. So it's almost like you're seeing the scene of these people that were chained in the attic. At one point, the mansion opened as a bar named the haunted saloon because of its reputation. And the bar owner would keep records of all the eerie experiences that some of the patrons would have. And there was so much activity going on there that he finally threw the towel in and said, you know, this place is just crazy. I can't keep it anymore. And it became a furniture store. The owner locked up one night. He came in the next day and all of the furniture was covered in a dark and foul smelling liquid. And he thought that these vandals had somehow broken in and ruined the furniture. So he decided the next night he was going to wait inside with a loaded shotgun. So he waits all night for the vandals to show up. They never did. But that didn't stop the furniture from being ruined once again. When... Daylight came up. He found that all the furniture was covered in that same stinky dark fluid again. So he sold the building because he's like, I don't know what's going on here, but I'm not, I'm not doing this anymore. Tourists who take pictures of the mansion or walk by the house catch orbs, weird lights, have weird feelings when they go by there. They've had people who will have fainting spills outside of the house. So it just seems like a really creepy place.
0: Back again after these messages. And we are back for a final time.
1: Now, number three is John Dillinger. I know this is a guy that you probably are a little bit interested in.
0: Yeah, John Dillinger is absolutely fascinating to me. He thought of himself a a 1930s Robin Hood. He handed out cash to, to poor families whose houses were foreclosed on by the the evil banks of the day. He was dashing, charming, but still a criminal. One of those guys who managed to, to get himself out of one scrape after another by the skin of his teeth. It's hard to believe he survived as long as he did, actually. And he swore to himself that he would never go back to prison and was willing to die with a gun in his hand before being caught and arrested.
1: Well, you know, whenever I hear stuff like that, I always think to myself, these were guys that were at the pinnacle of their crime sprees. Why in the world would they just disappear and never be heard from again? These were over-the-top characters. I just can't imagine them retiring quietly quietly to some far-off place, never to be seen again.
0: Actually, Dillinger did talk about retiring, but I, I think he knew deep down it would never happen. He knew J. Edgar Hoover would never, ever rest until he was caught or killed. But what I find amazing is that he managed to live the last couple of months of his life in Chicago, right under the nose of Melvin Purvis, in broad daylight, without the feds catching on. He even visited the Chicago World's Fair. John Dillinger, for at least a while, was a lucky, lucky guy.
1: He was, and one of the things that he tried to do to distract or try to get the heat off himself is to change his face and one of the stories that I love is that the doctor who had agreed to do the surgery he was going to help him get rid of some of these moles and some scars and uh, a cleft I guess he had in his chin and fix up his nose a little bit and back then basically what they would do is put a rag over you with some ether to try to knock you out and when he had done this to Dillinger I guess Dillinger had swallowed his tongue or something and he basically died, he turned blue. And so the doctor sees that he's turned blue and he's like, oh my God. So he revives him and doesn't let him know that, you know, uh, basically you just died here on the table. And then ironically, 25 days later, Dillinger is at the Biograph Theater with this Anna Sage. She's wore uh, a dress in a color that she had told the FBI, what she'd be wearing. And that would be the sign that she was with Dillinger. I've heard both that it was a red dress and an orange dress.
0: It was an orange dress.
1: And so there were 16 cops and FBI agents that were waiting for two hours outside this theater. Dillinger gets out. He steps down from the curb. He's past the alley entrance. I think he knew they were there, so he's trying to run, but it was just too late. Four shots were fired, and three of them hit him, and he was dead before he even hit the pavement, really.
0: The plastic surgery was a real hatchet job, and that is definitely part of why the rumors of him living on still persist, as you said. There are a lot of photos of him in the morgue, and he doesn't look the way he did in life, although part of the reason why might have been the weather. It was the middle of July when he was killed, and the morgue wasn't air-conditioned, so many say his body might have swelled due to the heat. But the plastic surgery certainly didn't help.
1: Yeah, you got to wonder about a doctor who basically kills you while he's trying to put you to sleep for the surgery. Maybe not somebody you want cutting on your face. Well, this Biograph Theater, which is the last location that Dillinger was in, is reputed to be quite haunted there. It's one of the most famously haunted theaters in Chicago. It's located on North Lincoln Avenue. And. One of the things is this alleyway that he had crossed through, a lot of people see this specter that's not only a full-bodied apparition of John Dillinger, but they also see him almost in a glowing blue, which is very weird. They'll see this glowing blue figure running down the alleyway, and then it just disappears almost kind of in the way of dillinger when he would fall to the pavement so it's almost like the ghost is falling towards the pavement and then disappears and people have also seen um other strange apparitions inside of the theater don't know if that's necessarily connected to dillinger there's cold spots and icy chills that they will feel outside get a real odd feeling local business owners began to notice that people had stopped using the alley as a shortcut to House street. And some of them complaining that that was because they were feeling something really creepy in that alleyway and that Dillinger was in that alleyway. He haunts some other locations. There's the old Lake County jail. This is a jail in Indiana where Dillinger made his infamous escape using that wooden gun (laughs) so it wasn't a real gun it was just carved to look like a gun and he managed to get out because of that and i don't know why he would want to go back to a jail that he had broken out of but a lot of people claim that he haunts that location they've caught evps of a male voice identifying itself as john Dillinger, and some people that are investigators also use these things called a ghost box which is basically an am radio and it'll just flip through the channels really quick. And apparently a ghost can use those signals to try to talk. And every so often you'll hear a blip where it'll say something. So if they were doing a ghost box section and they get Dillinger to say his name, it would be like, you'd hear Dill in Jer. But of course, if you're flipping through radio stations on an AM, it might just be that you're happening to pick up just the right syllables at the right moment. Who knows? Number two is Lizzie Borden. I know you've talked about her on your show.
0: Yep, a very early episode.
1: Well, the Lizzie Borden house is reputed to be one of the most haunted locations in America. This is a bed and breakfast to this day. A lot of people like to stay there. It was built back in 1845. Lizzie's father, Andrew, bought the house in 1872, and he moved his family of four into the home, and People felt like Lizzie and her sister were a little bit spoiled because this family uh, had a little bit more money than others. And there had originally been three daughters. There was Emma, Alice, and Louise. And unfortunately, Alice died when she was very young. And Sarah, Lizzie's mother, had also died when she was young. Andrew had remarried another woman. She was a nice woman. But he was not such a nice guy. He seemed like he was a little rough around the edges. He wasn't very personable with his daughters. Didn't have a really great relationship with them. And one day, he goes out and does some business. And while he's gone, the they had a, a servant or some girl. was there. had a girl who worked there. And she was doing some work in the kitchen. And then supposedly, she was outside cleaning the windows. And while this is going on, The stepmother is killed upstairs in the upstairs bedroom, and it appears that she was making a bed when it happened because the bed's partially made, and she's laying face down on the ground after she's been hit with this axe. Then a little bit later, Andrew comes home, and he decides to take a nap, and he's sleeping downstairs, and he's laying on just one of those little couches that they have, And while he's sleeping, he's hit with an ax. And they're both killed. I can't remember how many times each one of them is hit, but it's multiple times to the point where they're just unidentifiable. And Lizzie runs to a neighbor to let them know that she's come home and found her dad and her stepmother in this condition. So the coroner comes down, the police come down, this is back in the era where people are traipsing through the crime scenes, So you've got a contaminated crime scene. And eventually they figure out that Lizzie has committed this heinous act, which must have been mind-blowing back at that time, because you wouldn't think that a young girl would give her father 40 wax, as they like to say, uh, you know, kill both of these people with an axe like they did. And so she goes to trial and she's acquitted because they just don't have enough evidence back then. They they don't have any evidence, really, to prove that she's done it.
0: And there was also a, a prevalent belief during that time that a member of the fairer sex could not be capable of murder.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if you think about it, I mean, lifting an axe and, and repeatedly coming down on somebody with that kind of force, it would take a lot of strength. But Lizzie wasn't a small girl. I mean, she was a pretty big girl and she was a tough girl. She, she liked to get out and do things outside. And so she wasn't, you know, some little violet <laughs> or anything like that. So I could see her being, having the strength to wield an axe. Now, when you've got somebody who's taking an axe to their parents like this, that's a certain level of hate and anger you know, you got to wonder what is going on there. Of course, there were rumors circulating that maybe there was some incest going on in the house. There's no proof for that. People wonder how Lizzie would have committed this crime because if you're using an ax and you're hitting people that many times, there's got to be blood all over your clothes. And when she goes to the neighbors to get help, there's no blood on her at all. Now, the interesting key part here that a lot of people don't think about is there's this other sister named Emma, and she was not at the house at the time, or at least as far as people know, she wasn't at the house at the time. She was living in another city. But many times I've wondered myself, and I've almost come to the conclusion that I don't think Lizzie did it. I'm wondering if Emma did it, and that she had come back to the house during this time and committed this crime. I don't know if Lizzie knew it or not. But I think she might have helped to hide some of the evidence. And we're not really sure exactly why Emma would have done this. Her father wasn't really happy about the guy that she was with. We don't know if there was money involved. Or it could have been that maybe some guy who was just catching trains across the country did this. There were axe murders going on at the same time in different cities across America. And some people wonder if this wasn't some kind of a serial killer who was going around killing people, and maybe the Bordens just happened to be the next house that he hit. Who knows? But this house is haunted, and for very good reason, because not only did you have these people killed in a horrible, heinous way, but then Lizzie herself had to go through this trial, and if she was innocent, she basically lived with this over her head, because most people are going to believe that if you were put on trial for this. They're like, who else could have done it? So they, I think most people believed that Lizzie had actually done this. Guests and employees at this bed and breakfast report all kinds of unexplained occurrences. Many times they'll hear a woman softly weeping. Don't know if this is the stepmother, if it's Lizzie. The apparition of a woman in Victoria clothing has been seen, so we're talking the right era because that's the era that they were living in. The spirit sometimes appears to be dusting furniture or straightening beds. And sometimes the straightening of those beds goes on while people are laying in the bed. So they're actually feeling somebody patting the sides of the bed, tucking it in while they're in bed. That would be a little bit unnerving. You've got your typical opening and closing of doors all on their own. There's disembodied footsteps. So this is where you're hearing footsteps, but there's no person to go with them going up and down the hallways and up and down the stairs cold spots are felt throughout the house one visitor claimed that he entered his room and found it in an orderly fashion and then he turned his back while he was unpacking some of his stuff and putting it in the closet when he turned back around the bed was all torn up so don't know how that would happen uh another person went into their room and found the pillow was indented as if somebody's head was laying on it. And it wasn't just, you know, it hadn't been fluffed appropriately. And it looked like there was an indentation on top of the bed also. Uh, You've also had a lot of these uh, reality ghost shows have gone into the Lizzie Borden house and done different investigations, ghost hunters, ghost adventures. They've all done that. Uh, They all have claimed crazy activity, particularly down in the basement. This is where the murder weapon was found. People have been pushed, scratched, cameras have been set up for recording and they've watched the cameras get pushed over. The tapes have been messed with. Uh, And so is this Abby and Andrew? Abby was the stepmother haunting the house. Uh, Andrew's uncle had lived on the same property earlier in a house next door and his wife had tried to drown their children in the well so this family had some issues and uh, she did successfully kill two of the three children and then she committed suicide by slicing her own throat so some people wonder if she might be on the property and a lot of hauntings have just kind of a feeling about them that it might be creepy or a little bit scary to you but it's just kind of weird But then there's other hauntings that just feel very dark and evil. And this is one of those locations where people really feel that there's some kind of an evil entity there. And people wonder if it wasn't there from before. And that's why this murder occurred to begin with. That maybe it had some kind of an influence there and led members to kill each other of this family.
0: All right. So we are finally down to our last and most notorious ghost.
1: Well, our number one is probably one of the most notorious serial killers that we've ever had in America. And he really was pretty much the first serial killer that we know documented. And that's H.H. Holmes. And this is Herman Webster Mudgett. I don't know if you're very familiar with him, Eric.
0: Yes, yes, of course.
1: I had a feeling since you're near Chicago occasionally and stuff that you would know a bit about him.
0: For sure. He was immortalized by Eric Larson in the book Devil in the White City, almost common knowledge these days. I'll bet 99% of of you guys out there listening have read that book. Uh, He was a a serial killer who built a a murder castle in Chicago during the 1893 World's Fair. He'd rent out rooms to young women and then torture them in his basement torture chamber in all sorts of horrible, horrific ways before incinerating them in a furnace built just for that purpose. Some say he might have murdered as many as 200 people during his lifetime. And he would eventually admit to about 30 of his murders when he finally confesses and writes his pathetic autobiography (laughs) just before his execution in 1895.
1: Well, you know, most serial killers are narcissists, and he certainly was one of them. And yeah, he he was like, I didn't do any of that stuff. And then when he finally admitted it, it was like, well, yeah, I did this. And yeah, I think you're right. It, It was a number somewhere between 27 and 30 that he did admit that he had killed. I think there were nine that he was convicted of.
0: Yeah, it's one of those things where he denies, denies, denies. And then once he finally realizes that the execution is going to happen, there are no appeals left. He suddenly changes his tune because he wants to be the center of attention to the very end and chirps away.
1: Exactly. And it's really hard to explain away that you've built this grand hotel for everybody to come stay in during the World Fair that has doors that lock from the outside and not the inside You have these weird mazes. You have a chute that goes from these different floors all the way to the basement, and it's not for laundry. You've got lime. When the cops finally busted into this place because he had taken off and left town, they're finding all these bodies in pits, and it just, I don't know that they would have known how many he'd killed anyway because he was, number one, putting the bodies in line to get rid of them. But he also had this little tactic of making money where he would sell skeletons to all of these different schools around the country who were looking for these human skeletons. And so he would kill these women that would stay at the hotel and then rearticulate their bones after he got them cleaned up and sell the skeletons off to these schools. So there are still some of those skeletons out there probably somewhere. And they just don't know that these were some of the victims of... H. H. Holmes. And it, what's funny is he also, it's reputed, one of his partners that had worked with him had said that they would sometimes go and dig up bodies and do some of these grave robbings so that they could get the skeletons to sell off. And he had, H.H. H. Holmes had this horrible paranoia that somebody was going to dig him up too. So he demanded before he was executed that they bury him under concrete, which they did. I don't know if it was because it was his wish, more so that they wanted to keep, you know, people are souvenir seekers and they like to uh, dig people up when they're famous and such. So I think they were a little bit more afraid of that than following what he wanted to have them do. But this uh, murder castle no longer is standing. And one of the reasons why is because it had caught fire. And it was this fire that revealed a lot of the horrors that had gone on there. And that's how they discovered that this castle was really built this hotel was built to kill people and because it was in such horrible condition plus you can imagine the people of Chicago did not want to have this in the center of their city anymore because of the horrible reputation it had it was torn down and in its place they put a post office and I've actually been to this location in Chicago and the problem is they didn't get rid of the basement there so they built this post office right on top of this basement and it was in this basement where a lot of the murders probably took place where he was doing whatever he was doing with these different bodies so you can only imagine the kind of energy that's left behind in that basement and a lot of the employees at the post office claim to have haunting things going on there the passersby outside will be walking their dogs past the new building and they'll say that those dogs pull, like try to either get by it really fast or they pull them out towards the street because they don't want to be anywhere near that building for some reason. They'll start barking and whining and a lot of the times we say children and animals can feel ghosts a little bit more than we can or spirits. They're just more sensitive to it for some reason and we don't know. Dogs could probably see in a different way level than what we can. Postal employees say that they'll hear noises. Most of them do not want to go down in the basement if they can help it. Obviously, they have storage down there, but nobody wants to go down to get anything, and I don't blame them. I wouldn't want to go down there either. Uh, They've, mostly they hear sounds here. There's not really any apparitions that they've seen. And outside, occasionally, people say that they see people that are walking around in period dress. So I don't know if this is a carryover from possibly the World's Fair or if these are victims of H.H. Holmes. One of the interesting things that goes with this story is called the Holmes curse. And what this is is when H.H. Holmes was going to be hung, they say that he put a curse on all the people that were involved in this happening with him. And this story begins shortly after he was executed. Some believe that he was carrying on some of his gruesome serial killing after his death. So is it just a curse? Was he actually killing the people in his spectral form? But a short time after his body was buried, the first strange death occurred. And this was Dr. William K. Madden. He was the coroner's physician who'd been a major witness in the trial against him. He just drops dead from blood poisoning. More deaths followed in rapid order. You've got the head coroner was Dr. Ashbridge, the trial judge who had sentenced Holmes to death. Both of those men were diagnosed with these suddenly horribly deadly diseases that they had not had before the trial. So they both just all of a sudden get these horrible diseases. Next, you have the superintendent of the prison where Holmes had been incarcerated. He commits suicide. And nobody ever knew why he took his life. He didn't leave a letter behind, so did he really kill himself? The father of one of Holmes' victims was horribly burned in a gas explosion. And the Pinkerton agent, Frank Geyer, who was one of the main guys that had gone into the murder castle and gotten a lot of the evidence, he suddenly becomes very ill. So they're trying to figure out why in the world... Did all of these people just, it just seems a little strange that all of these people just died that soon after the execution. So a lot of people were convinced of this. Now, Holmes' partner in crime was Pat Quinlan, and he would always say that he was forced to do the things he did. He would say, I never killed anybody. I did help with some stuff, but he made me do it. Well, for 19 years, Quinlan could not sleep. He'd wake up screaming in the night. He'd be covered in sweat. He would have these night terrors almost every night, and he would call for help, and when a light would be brought to his room or they'd turn on a light, he would say that he was attacked while he was half-asleep by these strange hallucinations, and he would claim that it was Holmes that was attacking him. So people wonder is H H Holmes was his spirit going around killing these people and also going after his partner in crime who basically sold him out in the end. So, just interesting stuff. So that is my top 10 of the most notorious crimes or characters in history that have hauntings connected to them.
0: Well, it's an excellent list, Diane, and I wouldn't expect anything less than number 1 for H H Holmes. Thank you again for doing this. It It's great fun and a nice change of pace from my regular episodes.
1: I really enjoyed it, Eric, and want to wish all of your listeners a very happy Halloween.
0: Before you go, can you talk a little bit about your podcast?
1: Yes, it's called History Goes Bump, and the reason why I called it that is because when we talk about things like ghosts, we say something went bump in the night, so that's where we get History Goes Bump and basically our tagline is ghost tours for the theater of the mind i consider radio and podcasting to be the theater of the mind because we're basically creating a story for people to have in their heads and ghost tours are things that you can do in a lot of major cities these are ones that focus on a lot of the ghostly activity that's connected to some of the history in these cities and i like going on those because I love history, but I also like to get the seedy side of things to get some of the true crime stuff with it or some of the ghost stories with it. And so that's basically what we call our show. It's We're taking people on a ghost tour. What we do is we usually pick out a location, a person, or an event that have some kind of haunting connected to them, and we'll talk about the history or do a biography of it for the first half of the show, and then the second half we'll get into the reputed quote-unquote hauntings. And we always end the show with, That is for you to decide because we don't tell people what to believe. We let them decide for themselves.
0: Again, this was lots of fun. Thank you, Diane.
1: I had a great time, Eric. And people, if they want to find out more, they can just check us out at historygoesbump.com.